We are delighted that this episode of Starts at the Top is sponsored by Avato CRM Solutions. Avato CRM Solutions designs and delivers award-winning customer service, business process outsourcing, and digital and intelligent automation solutions of some of the world's most respected brands, as well as innovative charity and public sector clients. They partner with clients to help them define their customer experience and transformation strategies by implementing the right technology, people and processes to improve their customer journey while driving new efficiencies and helping them prepare for the future. To find out more about how Avato CRM solutions could help an organisation like yours and to receive a free no obligation chat, visit avato.co.uk forward slash Wales Air Ambulance. We always have a check-in before we get into the tasks. We ask the question, how are you doing? What's the emotional measurements of how you are feeling in your job as well? When you get an opportunity to build your own culture, these are some of the important things. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast is all about leadership and brings you interviews with leaders who we believe are driving positive change in the world. Change comes in many forms and we're equally interested in speaking to leaders who are making incremental change and shifting the dial within their organisations as we are speaking about huge systemic changes that impact the world of work. The driving force of this podcast is to share these stories across sectors and industries so that we can all learn from each other. Today we're sharing the first episode of two with a focus on mental health. This week, we're sharing our conversation with Ben Lindsay, OBE, founder of Power the Fight, an award-winning charity which tackles violence affecting young people. Ben shares his thoughts on how his team builds and sustains resilience and mental strength to cope with the challenges they face on a daily basis. It's a fantastic conversation and Ben is an inspiration, so we hope you enjoy that one. Our next episode will be our interview with Sarah Hughes of Mind, and that was also a wonderfully insightful and thoughtful conversation about the work that Mind does, shining a light on the challenges surrounding mental health in the UK. So given the topic of mental health, this week Zoe and I thought we would share a few personal and honest thoughts on our own mental wellbeing challenges. And then next time out, maybe some thoughts on coping mechanisms and how we uh, how we try to stay mentally healthy. So let me start by asking you, Zoe, how are you? I'm okay. I've had a bit of an overwhelming day just with a number of power cuts in this area, and then also um, and then also just oh the weather and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm not too bad. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. And it's that sort of thing, isn't it, that um, completely disrupt your your day, throw you off your your path. And I guess in this sort of busy climate, that's one of the things that we all struggle with is time. And if time gets disrupted, especially during the working day, um, then that can that can throw all kinds of spanners into the works. What do you do? What do you make of time and the pressures? I think that's one of the things that can have a real impact on mental health, can't it? So you and I have spoken before Mm -hmm. about the overwhelm that comes with modern working life and having a million emails to deal with, lots of different requests coming in, trying to juggle work and family. I'm sure that is a challenge that many of our listeners will know really, really, really well. Uh, and then also there's that that whole thing of feeling like you need to be in several different places at once. And I don't know whether any of our listeners maybe can relate to this, but I'm one of these people who there's a very fine line for me between being really busy to the point where I feel really kind of energized and excited because I've got so much going on and then suddenly it gets to a point where it's like putting an extra plate on top of a really big pile of plates it goes from a point where it all feels good and I feel like I'm getting lots of things done to actually this is a bridge too far and this is getting really quite difficult now. Yeah, I get that as, as well. It, when you're at your busiest, sometimes that's the most energising, isn't it? You you sort mm. of think you know you can't be beaten. Um, everything's fine, and you're on a you're on a roll. 
Um, and then that last thing, and it's usually a silly thing, really mm. silly thing. It's just the bit that you know, makes everything topple over. And then you, um, yeah, you're in a bit of a spiral then. You can't get back from it. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest battle for me is this, that sense of, of, of time, not being able to control time, not having enough of it. It's passing too quickly. Um, I have a really weird relationship with it where I always think it's running out rather than there's bags of it, if that makes sense. So yeah, um, you know, maybe not glass half empty, but more hourglass half empty. <laughs> yeah, I think that is is a challenge, isn't it? And I think as you get older, that does feel like uh, something you, you become more aware of, definitely. Yeah. And then just, you know, another one that I sort of wrote down, I was thinking about, you know, what are the sorts of things that um, stress me out? And I don't think I actually thought of this. We've mentioned this several times on the podcast. I don't think I really focused on mental health when I was, you know, working full-time, travelling into London. There wasn't really, sounds ridiculous, but there wasn't really time to focus on it. Um, and I think it's the pandemic that's forced uh, forced it on me. And then obviously... Um, I think again we've talked about this on this this podcast before my my dad died last year and he had vascular dementia and always in the back of my mind is that sort of sense of ah well if he had it do I have it so I get inordinately stressed out by not being able to remember things um and it's nothing you know I don't think it is anything to to be concerned about just yet and that's another thing should I go out and get myself checked up should I go and have some of the tests that my dad had and all that sort of stuff but that sort of sense that uh, forgetting stuff and not remembering what's next, I've got surrounded by post-it notes and always talking about how the um, the stress of sort of context switching and things like that can leave you a bit exhausted. But I think it is just that for the time being. It's stuff that piles up and, um, as I said, the the context switching between things. But there's yeah that that worry in the back of your mind. It's all sort of time and memory related and it sends again you into a bit of a uh, a sort of a spiral from time to time and I think that is really normal and I do think there's something about the ongoing impact of going through an ongoing mental health impact of life changes that tend to happen around this age and also that many people will have experienced during the pandemic as well um I as you know also lost a, a someone I really cared about a really good friend of mine uh, about a year ago and the start of this year uh, after Brad's six month anniversary was was really hard mental health wise it was incredibly difficult really really difficult and one of the things that, that Ben talks about in the interview that we're going to play shortly is he talks about the value of therapy. And if I hadn't had been fortunate enough to have access to, to regular therapy, I would have really, really struggled during that time. So I'm a massive advocate for therapy. The way I always say it is it's a bit like having a personal trainer um, for the mind, someone who can help keep you mentally in, in really good shape and also support you when you're going through a really rough period. Uh, so that is something I would always, always encourage people to, to seek out. You'll be pleased to know it's on a post-it on the bottom of my monitor. Of my monitor, I've got a, a post-it that says, do I need a coach? And underneath that, it says, do I? Do I need a therapist? Uh, but it's, it's on a to-do list. It's, it's on a, a, a post-it, but it's one of those things, isn't it? And I, I, as you know, you know, I always like to get football into the podcast, but um, I listen to a lot of football podcasts. And quite often, I guess because of the predominant audience, um, I don't think it's you know, wrong to say that predominant audience of some of the male football podcasts is going to be male football fans. And uh, one of the things that they constantly um, advertise is BetterHelp, which is the online mm. um, therapy, which again feels like it's a, a sort of an idea to explore at some point. Um, yeah, one of those things that floats around in the back of my mind, but I haven't actually activated yet. So what? You know, I'm not going to ask you what sort of things you discuss with your your therapist, but how does that work? Is it is it a regular session, or is it something that you can sort of dial up when you need to dial it up? 
Oh, I'm really happy to talk about this. I mean, the, this episode and also the next one, amazing conversation with with Sarah, um, and of course this amazing conversation we have coming up with Ben, I think it's, it's good to be open about this stuff. So I see my therapist every two to three weeks for now. Um, I talk to him online and we either talk about things that have happened to me when I was quite young. I quite a, a difficult childhood because my dad died when I was basically a child um, and that was really difficult and other than that we tend to talk about you know just the sort of like particular things that might have happened at work or maybe family that I might have found a bit bit challenging and I always always feel better afterwards I've never had a therapy session and regretted it or thought that wasn't a really good use of an ad it's a bit like you know when you go to the gym or you go for a run Mm. or something and you're thinking oh god should I be doing this and actually there's that extra thing when you go to therapy where you're thinking oh this is going to be quite difficult and I actually genuinely don't like talking about myself which might come as a surprise to people who go god she's just written another of her 500 blogs this week but i actually <laughs> genuinely don't like talking about very personal things with people i don't know that well but it's it's always been really useful and really constructive and yeah i i, I really really encourage people to do it i think if you're thinking about doing it it's a really good sign that you should do it and if something doesn't feel quite right even if you can't define what that is then definitely go and see someone and explore it and if you can't afford therapy you know go to talk to your GP um, because there may be some therapeutic services you can access through the NHS or even just talk to a really really good friend I think getting stuff out on the table having a look at it there's almost a digital way of doing things isn't there of that what Mm. is this problem we know something isn't right but let's define what this problem is and I'm a great believer that once you can see the edges of a problem even if it's something huge and scary you got to give something a name you give something a name and then you can do something about it so I'd encourage anyone listening who's not feeling great or who's just worried about something there's some recurring thought or worry or fear whatever it is where you're it's just coming up in your mind again and again it's a bit like that niggly pain that you might think actually I need to go and see a doctor about that just just do it you won't regret it good advice good advice maybe I should take up myself um I think it's it's well worth doing that and of course you know I think one of the benefits of one of the many benefits of doing this podcast is that we get to speak to um, people with all sorts of different experiences and this comes up a lot so it feels like we sort of have a you know every few days when we do a podcast recording another another chance to have a conversation with somebody else that's sort of um, facing challenging situations um and the benefit i guess of uh, you and i having that sort of 10 15 minutes chat before and after a podcast recording checking in with each other and making sure we're both okay and uh on, a, on an even keel, I guess, is the, the best way to put it. So the next time we speak, uh, what we will do is we will um, share some of our coping mechanisms. You've already mentioned Zoe running. Um, music is another one, but we can talk through a, a bit about how we get ourselves out of these little episodes of annoyance or frustration or uh, mental ill health. Anyway, hmm. should we get on with our um, interview? Perfect. So now for our interview with Ben Lindsay. We are very excited to welcome Ben Lindsay OBE to Starts at the Top. Ben is founder of Power the Fight, launched in 2019. It's an award-winning charity which tackles violence affecting young people, creating long-term solutions for sustainable change and acting as a link between the community and policymakers. Ben was winner of the Charity Times 2022 Rising Leader Award and one of the Evening Standards Progress 1000 London's most influential people for 2018. He's an experienced presenter, trainer and facilitator with more than 20 years spent working with high-risk young people in the field of gangs and serious youth violence. Ben began his career developing programmes in some of the most challenging estates in London. In 2003, he became a learning mentor at a primary school in the borough of Lewisham, 
before joining the Lewisham Youth Offending Service, where he worked in a number of roles, including leading the early intervention team. Whilst at Lewisham, Ben developed several successful programmes, including the groundbreaking Knife Crime Prevention Programme, Double Edge, for offenders of knife crime, which was featured in the Gang and Group Offenders, a practitioner's handbook of ideas and interventions. In 2010, Ben developed the Gangs and Serious Youth Violence Strategy for Camden Council, and then went on to work for the mental health charity Mac UK, leading their Mini Mac project. Ben was chair of the Greenwich Independent Advisory Group until 2016. Between 2016 and 2020, Ben was lead pastor at Emmanuel New Cross in South East London. He currently sits on the Mayor of London Sadiq Khan's Violence Reduction Unit Reference Group and on the Cross Party Youth Violence Commission. His first book, the number one bestseller, We Need to Talk About Race, Understanding the Black Experience in White Majority Churches, was released in 2019. Ben was awarded an OBE in King Charles' first New Year's Honours list for services to communities in South East London. Ben, welcome to Starts at the Top. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's always funny when I hear uh, all that stuff which you just, <laughs> you just said. <laughs> it's like, is it really? Is that really me? But yeah, apparently it was. So yeah, no, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You have quite the bio and you've obviously done so many amazing things, which we're really excited to talk to you about. And obviously there's a common thread, isn't there, running through all this fascinating and very valuable experience you've had around tackling violence affecting young people. Could you take us back to the moment when you felt you'd found your calling? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I think the moment probably was around 2001 and I was working in the city um, and I was working for Ofcom. No, I was working for Oftel, which then became Ofcom. So um, kind of all around telecommunications. And that was one of the first jobs I had coming out of university. It was one of the press office managers for, for Oftel. It was a very interesting time. Um, when kind of mobile phone licenses were just being distributed and it was, a, it was a very busy time. But at the same time in the evenings, I was just working in, I was just volunteering in youth clubs and, and youth centres. And what happened was at the time, I I just recently uh, started going to church and I kind of I became a Christian, even though I, I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, I'd kind of discovered uh Christianity for myself and it was at that moment where I felt oh well what does this really mean um yes I get the individual personal uh, relationship I now have um, with the church and with Jesus but what does that really mean for the community how do I give myself and serve the community what does that really mean so me and a few friends just decided to go to various estates in southeast London um, we'd take our turntables and our microphones and we'll just go and serve um, kids and loved it. But then it got to a point where I was doing a lot of that stuff in the evening and my day job. And then there was an opportunity to take voluntary redundancy in uh, 2003 at Oftel before it became Ofcom. And I just thought, you know what, I think I can, I think I can maybe do this full time. Um but there was a young man called Emmanuel who who lost his life um, 2004. And I suppose that was the moment where I thought, actually, we need more. We need more people like myself who grew up in South East London, who understands the, the culture, understands what young people and families go through. Um, he was a lovely young boy. We used to... Uh, do a football club in a in a local secondary school, and you know I think the environment around him caught up with him, and he lost his life. But I suppose that was the first young person I I known and worked with and mentored who who'd lost their life, and I was like, okay, I don't want to see anybody else lose their lives, so let let me just put as much energy and time into this as as, as I could. So it was a probably the early noughties were the moments where I I kind of felt my calling. And that was the moment that really spurred you on to make a difference, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think the way I look at 
engaging with trauma and engaging with particularly young people impacted by violence or at risk of is that it's, it's kind of two avenues you can go down one you've experienced trauma and and pain suffering and violence yourself and what tends to happen is that people then think because i've been through that experience i can give my learning and my experience to young people in that, in that way which i think is which is fine i think there's another approach though which is probably where i sit which is okay i have not personally gone through knife crime gang crime i've not personally been in a gang um i've not gone to prison i grew up around a, a time when that stuff was around me but my lived experience isn't that and therefore because i can slightly detach my emotions i can actually maybe be a, a good person to practically proactively work in this space and that was me. I just thought, well, actually, I'm not traumatised by this stuff. So let me come with as much help and support as possible to the young people around me. Um, that was just something which I felt I could do. And that has served me well. As time has gone on over the last 20 years, the communities that I've worked with, the families and young people I've worked with, I suppose because I am quite trauma-informed in my, in my approach, it's just meant that I can probably just take the sting and the emotion a little bit out of the work that I do because I've not lived through it myself. Whereas what I've seen with some people with, with, the, with lived experience, there always comes a moment where um, burnout comes. And I think that happens to a lot of people and it, it did happen to me um, around 2011. But I think it comes quicker with those who have had lived experience and particularly when you haven't got the clinical support, clinical supervision around you. So I think that served me well. That was probably my moment where I felt I could do this because I'm just looking at this from a slightly different perspective. How did the young people react to that around you? Are they, do they sort of think, well, actually, if you haven't been through this, then how, how do you know? What do you know? Or they, do they look for a mixture of, of, of both that lived experience and, and somebody that's grown up around it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think it's just there's levels to it. I don't know if... I think it's a bit of a myth that young people think I can only relate to, to the ex-gang member um, or I can only relate to the person who's gone to prison. Uh, and I, I always kind of say, well... <laughs> you want to really engage with the person who got caught or the person who didn't. So that's, so, and that, and that is to say that, you know, let's, I'm not saying that I've always had a squeaky clean lifestyle, you know, I've never been involved in anything illegal, but there's been definitely moments when I've been around people where you have to make a choice, whether you go left or right. So I think my experience would be, oh, I've seen people go down and, and take, the wrong turn I've been fortunate enough to make decisions whether it's because of people around me or you know just because I was into different things and I think ultimately children and young people want options they, they want to see people who are successes regardless it's like well if I can say to you I'm a success in a way which didn't involve drugs and crime or even the stereotypical side of stuff I'm not a sportsman, I'm not a musician, you know, but I, I am a success. Let's look at that. I think children and young people, particularly nowadays, there's an entrepreneurial spirit which most young people have and they want to learn and without trying to sound like too much of a capitalist, they just want to see how you make money, you know, and, and there's fortunately there's people around me and in my circle who... If it is a money conversation, I know people who have made lots of money legally. But if it's even a case of well, creatively, oh, I've got, I know people who have who are footballers or who are musicians who are doing positive stuff. Okay, we can we can give you those examples as well. So I think it's just about making sure you've got a wide enough network of people to present different options, which isn't always a case of I have to do the street stuff, I have to sell drugs, I have to do this. Um, provide the, the, the different examples. And I think we, like networking is one of my superpowers, I would say. And therefore, because I've got a wide network of, of people in different sectors, 
I can use that to inspire families and young people to move in a different way. And that experience of burnout that you talked about earlier, Mm. that feels like such a common thing with many of the leaders actually that we've interviewed for this podcast because people are very passionate about what they do and often they're, you know, and I speak for myself, you know, trying to do almost too much. And the other week we had Summer Sara on, the co-founder of Everyone's Invited, and she talked about some of her experiences with that. You mentioned that you'd experienced that now. Mm. Have you got any advice for leaders out there who might be on the brink of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I experienced burnout probably twice, actually. The first time um, would have been around 2010, 2011. I just started working at Camden Council, working on a, a youth violence strategy. Um, but I'd worked you know, five, six years prior to that in Lewisham for Fending Service, working with very like vulnerable young people, high-risk young people, families. And uh, what I noticed, we were dealing with death. We were dealing with young people being incarcerated for long sentences. We were dealing with street-level violence in the community. And it just wasn't the therapeutic support. There wasn't the clinical supervision. There wasn't a space where you could really unpack the impact of the violence um, which was impacting the communities around you. And because of that, by the time I got to 2010, 2011, I was just like, I'm I'm traumatised by what I've seen. I've seen young people lose their lives. I've seen, you know, extreme levels of of, of violence and criminality, um, sexual violence. I've read the the crime reports and the stuff which are going to courts. And it's it's just too much. So that was the first time. The second time was then in my role as a pastor in in a, in a church, and you're dealing with hundreds of pastoral issues. Um, the set that time is when I caught it actually, and I was like, actually, I need clinical supervision. I need um, supervision, which is outside line management, where I can have therapeutic support and. I brought this to the church I was working for at the time and it was a very new concept. They were very much like, what is this? We're not sure we want to pay for, you got pastoral support. Ben, you're a Christian. So if you really have <laughs> trauma, just pray and read your Bible and God will sort it out. And I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I'm not saying those tools are not necessary, but actually what I require is somebody who's trained, who understands trauma. And um, I believe, the church should be paying for that so that was my first push and eventually they agreed it went to trustees and the trustees said look if Ben is calling for this then we should do it ironically than every other member every other pastor later on ended up having clinical supervision so I pioneered in that space but um that was the moment where I was I, I felt I needed somebody who was not connected to the work that I was doing to give me honest conversations and honest support and yeah strategies and my advice really would be yeah definitely if you've got an opportunity push your employer uh to to give you that clinical therapeutic support you know um I think if we look at tv shows like I don't know if you remember that show Billions um which was I think it was on Sky or something like that and they had like a psychologist um, in their in 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 at being employed, I think it's happening a lot more nowadays. Um, and there's there's lots of examples where that, I think it saves something like 1.4 billion of 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 um, businesses when you have that type of therapeutic support in in space. But yeah, I do, I think you just have to catch it. And what was helpful for me actually, I did this for eight. I started, I think it was like 2013. Um, after having a conversation with my employer at the time, which was Emmanuel Church, London. And um, I spoke about all types of stuff. I thought initially it was just going to be about work, but actually I found myself talking about race as well and racism and my own history and what I was feeling at the time. I didn't realise it, but it was it was preparing me to write my book. And then actually when I wrote my book and it came out in 2018, when George Floyd happened in 2020, I felt an immense calm. It was very, obviously, it was horrific, what was going on. 
But while everybody else was trying to like, oh my goodness, we're having, we're having this live conversation about racism, I just felt at peace because I dealt with my own issues with race and racism for the last eight years. And it was it was fascinating. So definitely my, my, my advice for people is, and I always say this, get therapy even when you think you don't need it. Um, that is my advice uh, to everybody I meet, but it served me well and, and it served others well. I completely agree with that, Ben. As you were describing that earlier, everything you said really resonated with me. And I was trying to explain this to someone I mentor actually about the value of of leaders and therapy. And I I just feel that everything is connected, isn't it? So it's really interesting what you were saying about the professional and the personal. And before I had therapy, I would kind of put those things in in different baskets. Um, but actually everything's connected up, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, yeah, this idea that you can somehow separate your personal life from from your professional life, I think is a myth. Um, My organisation, Power to Fight, we we like to say that we are trauma-informed, which means for us, we're in this space where every single member of my team, whether you're my EA to my frontline workers, gets clinical supervision. Now, that is expensive. Like, if I'm going to be honest, that is like an extra 40k a year to uh, my budget. But because of my own personal experiences, I really value that highly that my staff have an opportunity to talk to um, somebody else outside of line management supervision. And I think we also create reflective spaces as well as a team. So we're very much like, how can we learn from one another? which is really important. We have this employee scheme as well, which is outside of the organisation where if there's things which people want to talk about and they don't feel like they want to talk about it in the context of Power to Fight, then they can go there as well. At every single space and moment, we want to create trauma-informed opportunities and therapeutic opportunities where my staff feel that they can get the best level of support and we always have a check-in even my senior leadership team meetings we spend the first 15 minutes just we ask the question how are you doing let's talk personally if you want to share but let's also before we get into the tasks how are what's the emotional measurements of how you are feeling in your job as well are you feeling overwhelmed are you feeling stressed and if this is the case why and we do that, we go around the table to do that. So I think we have, you know, I, these are things I never really experienced working in youth offending services and community. In statutory organisations, it's just, you haven't really got the space to do that. But when you get an opportunity to build your own culture, these are some of the important things. That's great. So you're really normalising this conversation about mental health and creating space for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of new things in there. So, for example... The first time, so one of the things is uh, at my age of 45 years old, um, it means that I'm in this space where I get to manage younger people and older people. So what is new for me, for example, is I'm now managing older women and we're having conversations about menopause and, and the desire for a menopause policy and menopause groups being set up, which I think is brilliant. And and I've said, yeah, cool. Let's 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 look. We've now got a menopause policy, which we're just looking at at the moment. Um, and there's maybe three members of staff who are going through the menopause at the moment. I just think this is not something I experienced twenty years ago. These are conversations which were not being had. But I'm I, I think it's so important that if there's anything which has the potential to make your work life not brilliant, not great, or there's things which are hindering that. Um, and it's complicated. As a man, it's complicated because I, I, I don't... My first thoughts were I don't want any... I don't want anything that somebody's going through um, for me to feel like that has a potential to stop you from doing your work well. So it's almost part of me kind of feels... 
I almost don't want to know, so I don't have stuff in my mind. And then my other part of me was like, no, 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 this is brilliant. We need to get stuff out. We need to have the honest conversations and then create the work environments which make and help people flourish to the to the best of their ability. So it just gives you a bit of an idea of where my head is at and the type of organisation we're trying to build. And that's such a thoughtful way to approach leadership and to think about how you support your team through these different life transitions. Yeah. I mean, we, we, yes. I mean, whether it's, you know, pregnancy or the other thing we, you know, something else we've just recently done, which I've never seen before, but, you know, we're up for trying other things that a friend, well, she is, she's a friend who ended up working for Power the Fight because when you start a small organisation, you just try and get your friends (laughs) to work with you. And then it's kind of like, okay, now you have to go beyond your friendship groups. Um, But she, she recently got married and, and said to me, I've had this incredible opportunity to to go to Uganda and to work. And I wondered whether I could spend three months remotely working in, in Uganda. And I was like, oh, wow, um, there's a two-hour time difference. I was like, mm, it's not too bad. Um, yeah, the internet can be in and out. But, you know, you get that in the UK as well, as it's been demonstrated. Um so we've really thought it through, looked at the policies, looked at insurance, and yeah, she's out there for three months with her husband and their son. And yeah, it's a, it's. I like to create the flexibility. Um, she's having an incredible time out there. It's not really impacted the work that she's she's had digital content lead, so she still gets to run out our, our socials and stuff like that. But it's things like this, which I think is a smaller organisation, you can attempt to try these things out and see how how it plans, how it works out. Yeah, and I think we've all been through that. That you mentioned the pandemic when we were uh, talking just before recording, and well, Zoe and I have noticed that when the conversations that we started with leaders, and we've had, you know, this is we've done over fifty episodes now, and had lots of conversations with lots of many many people, and the, the common trend is that we're all starting to ask more questions of, you know, what is it that I want from my life, whether it's mm. a sabbatical away from the office and you want to keep good people you want to give them access to that if you possibly can all the way through to you know um, even bigger life changes people moving away and, and it's all about that retention of, of talent you don't want to lose the people that uh, are there and you know that there will be other organizations of a similar size out there who are looking at all of these things there's a pressure as a leader i think to try and keep up with those trends that people will come into the office and ask for yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I the pandemic changed everything. You know, hybrid working. Um, you know what you can do online. I and just I, don't know, I think it was just an opportunity for people just to reflect on what's important. Yeah. So yeah, it's it was a strange moment as we know, but I think it was also the the false moment for everyone to say, right, what matters how much productivity can I realistically achieve? How does it impact my emotional and mental health? And I and I think as a small organisation, we've had to adapt to that. You know, a lot of my team work four days. Um, some of my team um, take like every other Friday off. You know, that's been, it's been agreed so they can have a longer weekend. Um, for me, I mean, you can't see our offices, but our, we're we're in Peckham in a shared um, kind of office space. But we have three offices here, and it's a it's a very nice space. You know, um, aesthetics is important for me, um, and I think sometimes when you think about the work we do with young people, you think of grotty youth centres, and I didn't want that. I wanted us mm-hmm. to be in a space where you'd actually want to enjoy coming to work. We've got lots of plants around. There's a wine bar on the top of our, on the fifth floor. Um, there's spaces where you can just, it's a very nice space equipment-wise. Mm-hmm. I've always said I want people to not have broken equipment so people have, like, nice mobile phones and, and, and some of this stuff people might think, doesn't matter but I actually really want to honour and respect the people who are doing incredible work we're talking about working with very high risk families very high risk young people um, going above and beyond to keep communities safe and the least we can do is give them a phone which doesn't break down so it's kind of these things 
all for me matter where you've got an opportunity to be to, to yeah present the best version of yourself when you're at work yeah it's certainly given me food food for thought because I'm a, a trustee of a local organisation here in Hertfordshire, and what we do is help people in crisis. Uh, it's that it's that battle between whether they're paying for power or whether they're paying for food, literally, and being able to help people with that sort of thing. So the people that work in the team are constantly faced with conversations, really difficult conversations with 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 people, um, and we brought that up at a, a recent trustee meeting about mental health and, and well-being and it was you know it's not that we want you trained in how to recognize it is that we want you to go into some kind of therapy session yourselves for because you're dealing with this stuff day in day out so it's really really important mm-hmm. i just wanted to pivot a little bit but sort of staying with the mental health angle i guess um so i i tried to do a bit of um research uh, over the last couple of days and it's um it's one of those things that i think uh, i'm dipping a a little toe in and it's just got to go deeper and deeper and deeper so forgive me but I'm I'm sort of not all there but um, I was listening to your interview with Governor B on your um, uh, Power Talk podcast and it was yeah. fascinating there was a couple of things that sort of really resonated and it comes back to the mental health and well-being I can walk out of my front door here and I can walk down to the park and I don't feel threatened I can put on my running gear. This is something that I thought was very funny uh, when you talked about running, but I can put on my running gear and suddenly I'm conscious that I'm running behind people and I might scare them and boot them out of the way. But one of the things you mentioned and one of the things that Governor B mentioned was stepping outside your door in your local community can be you're on a constant watch and you talked about um, things like, you know, when you go running, you put on brightly coloured gear so you don't look threatening running behind people he talked about going to parliament and changing his look by putting his hair up and i what i'm interested in just exploring for a minute is that that the mental toll that that must take on young people living in your area where every time they leave the house and this isn't just work related every time they leave the house there is that thought in the back of their mind that that something could happen they're, they're always on on watch could you just talk a little bit about the how that sort of presents itself to, in the work that you're doing? That that constant threat of something could happen that perhaps you know I don't feel as a as a tall white man. So he probably feels going out. You've talked about it though when you go out for a run or when you go outside of your front door. That vulnerability. Just talk to me about that for a, a, a bit, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great question. I think context is everything, really. So. Um, my context very much was growing up in the 90s um, as a teenager um, in the shadow of Stephen Lawrence being murdered. And Stephen was a friend of, of some of my friends and <clears throat> and um, he was murdered a mile away from the school I went to and I was 15 at the time. So for me, it was a, a, a moment maybe the most important moment of my of my youth and it was at a time when uh the national front um before the bmp and before edl the national front were the people who were who were after mainly young black boys and were prepared to really harm them so that was my context and our parents would say it's better that you walk in a group than on your own for safety now that would have been deemed as a gang nowadays but it was literally like, yeah, we're just going to walk together because we feel safe. Fast forward 30 years, and it's a slightly different ball game for young people now. Um, whereas my biggest concern was white young men who wanted to kill black boys. Um, a lot of the kids in a southeast, well, in a London context, you know, and we have to be careful when we talk about race and violence. Um, in in a London context, violence affecting young people disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. That doesn't mean that this is a black issue. And I always say this, if you take a place like Cleveland in Middlesbrough or near Middlesbrough and Newcastle and those places, which is a population um, where um, percentages where it's 98% white, they have the highest rate of knife crime in the country. Second is West Midlands, that's a higher Asian population, and then you have London. So we have to just, I have to always clarify that it's not 
like race and violence doesn't necessarily, you know, collate in that way. However, what I engage with a lot of kids, a lot of black children, a lot of black and brown kids, there's a fear and anxiety about children who look like them. So when I'm in a school context and I hear a young person say, do you know, Ben, are you honestly saying that when you see someone who looks like you, you don't fear them? And I'm like, well, no, I'm as a 45 year old man. And if I see someone who, who looks like me, I'm likely to just either ignore them or politely smile or, or whatever. That's not what they say. They say, well, if I see someone who looks like me, who I don't recognize, I, I look at them as a threat. And that's Black children, as white kids, as as boys and girls, I've been in 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 school context. So there is an anxiety and a fear which young people have, which we did not have growing up. Um, and yeah, I so there's, there's so there's that level. There's kind of like young people are just fearful. This is why our therapeutic work we do in schools is so important. We're trying to go beyond the headlines. The headline is knife crime. Someone's lost their lives what you don't see is what's led up to that. You've you've not seen the fear and the anxiety and the, and the concern which the average young person will have. Um, not necessarily because they've experienced direct violence, but because of the of social media, there's a lot of indirect things which kids will, will pick up through Snapchat and stuff like that. So there's there. But then there's, there is a, a population of, of, and I can only talk from my perspective, but there's a population of black men um, who let's say are between the ages of 35 and 45 and maybe even older who do struggle with the racial profiling which will come from the police or where it will come from in the form of academics or teachers you know um and in my case i live in a very gentrified area in southeast london and yeah, when I'm running, I am very conscious of of the of the views that um, my white middle class neighbours will have of of me. And I know the difference between me walking down the street with my three very cute children and the smiles and I get, and I can then be wearing exactly the same stuff and I'm on my own. And it, there is there are no smiles. There are there are people looking very concerned. Now some people might be like, well. No, no one is forcing people shouldn't have to feel like they should smile. That's I get that, but you can also tell when there's a little bit of kind of a yeah feeling of angst, which I I you pick up very quickly. And in Governor B's like context, yeah, he recently had a a situation where he he was attacked in Blackheath, which is a very gentrified area of of southeast London, and completely unprovoked attack where he almost lost an eye just because he was walking past, you know, some white builders. And as shocking as that is, it doesn't actually surprise me because like you said, we are always on on guard. And I think going back to the whole mental health stuff, a lot of actually black men, at least in my friendship group, therapy is a new thing. You know, again, the pandemic meant that we had to have these conversations on our WhatsApp groups but so many of my friends still don't go to therapists, don't have therapy, don't engage about their own trauma. Um, we're getting there, but this is a real thing which still impacts us today. So yeah, I think when you look at context, when you look at age ranges, the, the common denominator is, is fear, but it plays out differently depending on your age, context and, and stuff like that. And it's expensive, right, isn't it? And that's something he talks about, you know, go and get therapy. Well, it's, it's easy for people to say. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and the um, Better Health is constantly trailed <laughs> on these podcasts. And again, you know, I looked at it because, you know, my, my issues are my issues. But, you know, the, I, I looked yeah. at it and thought, well, how much does this? And it's, it's even that's prohibitively expensive for somebody that doesn't have readily available money. So... I know you talked about some of the stuff you're doing to, to sort of try and get through that. Can you just tell us mm. a bit about what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you're right. So we we put out, um, it was during the pandemic, actually, we got some money from the Mayor of London um, to trial um, this therapeutic approach because I think there's, there's a couple of things. One, it's expensive. But from a black and brown perspective, um, there is, uh, in some cases, a lot of distrust about 
white authority. And therefore, when you go to, uh, when you look for clinical support, most of these people are, most of the doctors, most of the clinicians, most of the therapists, most of the counsellors, most of the psychologists tend to be white and middle class. And we were going to trial this, uh, this approach in a school, which was, could we get culturally sensitive therapists, counsellors, psychologists, youth practitioners in a school context to kind of produce a co-produced, co-designed mental health approach for young people? We got some money to do that. Then the pandemic happened and we were like, well, actually, should we turn this into a research project? Let's actually talk to 100 kids, some frontline practitioners, some families, and let's see about what they feel around therapy and the connection to violence affecting young people. And what we got back was we, the community, do not trust white authority. We appreciate there might be therapeutic support which is needed, but often the the, the, the waiting lists are too high. Um, there's a lack of trust. And this term cultural sensitivity or cultural competency kept on coming back. That we don't believe that actually the people who want to support us um, are culturally sensitive. And what does that actually mean? Um, so do you understand the, the culture and the context that you are serving in? And what we kept on coming back was actually you've got young people and families saying, you're not culturally sensitive, but you've also got practitioners saying, we don't feel confident to be, to understand, we don't understand the culture that we are working. So you've got teachers who are saying, I'm in this diverse community, this racially diverse community, different class to what I'm used to, and I don't feel I've got the tools to engage on that level. So that's a massive problem when you've got the young people and families saying, you're not culturally sensitive, and then you've got the teachers, police officers, therapists, doctors saying, I don't understand the culture. So for us, we were like, well, actually, we need to bridge the gap here. So yes, we, on a practical level, we can create these co-produced approaches which are engaging with young people, teachers, and parents and carers with our culturally sensitive therapists and counsellors, etc. But there's also this element of how do we train teachers and therapists and doctors and police officers to become more culturally sensitive in their high, in a very hyper-local way. Now, one thing which I don't think you mentioned in my in my bio um, was the fact that I'm doing also doing a PhD at Durham University, and I'm looking very specifically at the lack of cultural sensitivity in teaching. So, how do teachers become? Did they get that in their training? And when they then land in in a school which is very different to what they're used to. What do the school do in terms of their policy to help them become more culturally sensitive and more culturally aware? Um, so I'm, I've just started that as well. So for me, it's 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 really important that we do present as many spaces and opportunities as possible for therapy for families and young people, um, but also appreciating that our practitioners uh, and teachers don't feel confident in that space and we have to upskill them to understand the communities that they're serving better. So that was very long-winded, but I can't unpack it in any other way. <laughs> no, I, I think that's brilliant, Ben, because everything you just said there and also everything you've described this morning is that there's something there about the spaces for therapeutic approaches around the therapy, isn't there? So there's mm. the, I'm going to support and resource you know, very sort of, very sort of well, um, and quite rightly for my staff to access therapy. But it's also about reinforcing that through, we talk about mental health in meetings, we think about some of the kind of, you know, cultural challenges that may exist within the work that we do that will affect people's mental health and well being. So yeah, I really like the, the way you've approached this in this very sort of joined up fashion, so that you're thinking about how everything connects with everything else. Yeah, I I think what we it's what we we call um, this uh, ground engagement and air engagement. So we have this thing at, at Powder Fight where we're saying, okay, the ground is very much around the community, the therapeutic support and pastoral care, mentoring. How do you effectively get the community voice heard? 
Um, and then you've got this air engagement is very much around policy and decision-making and local government and central government and strategy. And if power to fight is anything, we are the conduit between the two. We, we try and get the community's voices and experiences to move very much a little bit like the water cycle of, you know, the water impacts the ground and then it impacts the air. And it's kind of like this ongoing kind of circular movement. This is what we're trying to attempt to do with the communities who have been impacted by violence. And for me, there's not enough conduit organisations who have got the trust of the community, but also have got the trust of the decision makers. I think this is what separates us from most organisations. Most organisations probably fit into one or the other of those spaces, the air engagement and the ground engagement. What separates us is that, no, no, we're well-respected with policymakers and decision makers and, and, and MPs, but we're also known on, on the ground level of really supporting communities around this issue of violence affecting young people. And I think you, you've got to keep asking yourself the question, does the community actually have a say in how their communities are governed and supported? And so often it's not that case. So you have to have people who can speak on, on their behalf and empower them to have that authority in, the, in their spaces. I love that point about ground engagement and air engagement. It feels like the the secrets are really good collaboration. Yeah, I, I, I think collaboration is one of my my values and I, and I love and, but it's, you know, I always say to my children, <laughs> like, you know, when your kids are arguing with each other or there's situations which happen in a school context. I'm, and I always say, like, just being likeable <laughs> will get you, will open you doors more than anything else. That you can have all the intelligence and you can have all the creative ability. But ultimately, if, if people like you, they're more likely to give you an opportunity. And, and for me, I think the likeability... Of, of my team and who I am has meant that we've been able to build not just networks, but diverse networks. Um, and I think when, like going back to charity for the moment, we have a mixed funding model where it is very much around um, classic funding, like grants and foundations, but we also work well with corporates. And yes, we have high net worth individuals who, who want to give. Um, but we have to mix it up. And sometimes the money which comes in are from places which you wouldn't even think would engage with, 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 with the type of issues that we're dealing with. But we have to widen it up, widen our, our, our collaboration and partners because in the cost of living crisis, um, it's really difficult. Like our, our on-the-ground donations have been cut by 50% in the last year. Um, and because we've got that mixed funding model, I mean, it impacts us, but there's other sources of funding. So it's really important as a, from a strategy perspective that you do have multiple funding streams. Um, but a lot of that does come down to relationship and experience. And, I, and I've got 20 years in this and that is that helps. Definitely. It's all about the relationships and the, the networks, isn't it? Ben this has been fantastic thank you we've learned so much from you this morning I really loved hearing about your really thoughtful really innovative approach is there anything uh, that you'd like to share about uh, Power the Fight before we wrap up where can people go to find out more about you and your team's amazing work yeah no thank you for having me it's been really great talking to you guys you guys are, are brilliant um so yeah you can go to our website it's www.powerthefight.org.uk. You can follow us on all the the socials where it's just Power the Fight UK, Instagram, Facebook. I think we might even have a TikTok, which I don't get involved in, but apparently we've got one. Um, <laughs> You're not on their dancing, then. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good at many things. But if you notice, dancing was not in my bio. So that's something which is not, <laughs> not something which you'll ever see me do, even though my digital content lead would love me to do that. Um, but yeah, we, we, you know, there's, there's things that we are always trying to engage. We've got a crowdfunder at the moment, which we're trying to raise. 30k for our continuing our therapeutic support so yeah there's lots of different things that you can connect in and engage with at power fight amazing we'll put some links in the show notes ben thank you so much for coming on it's been wonderful thank you for coming on starts to the top
No, it's been yeah, brilliant. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, yeah, um, I follow you guys on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, so I learn a lot from you guys as well. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you to thank Ben you. for making the time to come onto the podcast. You can find more information about Power the Fight via their website at powerthefight.org.uk. That's powerthefight.org.uk. We'll be back in a fortnight with our episode with Sarah Hughes. You can support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us, whether Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you and bye for now. See ya.